0: Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather, the weather and climate podcast from the Met Office. Today I've got co presenter Aisha Tandon with me.
1: Hi, yes, I'm Aisha. I'm a climate science communicator here at the Met Office and very excited to be on this podcast.
0: Great. Well, today we are talking about UK climate projections extremes. And we're really lucky today with us is James Murphy. Hi, James. Hi, Doug. So, James leads research on climate prediction and climate projections here at the Met Office. He's a science fellow. And also we have Simon Brown. Simon, uh, do you lead research on the extremes in the climate?
2: That's my focus, yeah. So any type of extremes, both in the past and the future, that are weather-driven.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'd like to come to James first, if that's right, because James, we're talking about UK climate projections today. And I understand you've got a big new report that's come out, some new science but also this is part of a longer project for the UK Climate Projections. Could you describe to me what UKCP, the UK Climate Projections, are and how long you've been researching this?
3: Recently, we've updated the UK Climate Projections through a major release in 2018. And this follows off the back of several generations of UK climate scenarios that really go back to before the year 2000. The most recent release, I think it's fair to say, was the most comprehensive or the richest in terms of content that we've ever produced. So firstly, we have both land and marine projections. And today we are going to be talking about the land component. But the land component itself is split into several different types of information. So what we're going to be talking about today mainly is one that we call the probabilistic projections. And this is really a product which is focused on combining a large amount of climate information to get a sense of uncertainties in the future changes. What kind
0: of timescales are we talking about and uh, where are the projections focused?
3: So in terms of timescale, we cover the whole 21st century, and we do that for several different future emission scenarios as well. Now, the probabilistic projections are focused mainly on the UK, although we do produce a sort of global temperature uh, result as well, because that's a signature climate variable that a lot of people like to use to set the UK results in context. But in addition to the probabilistic projections, we also have a set of global climate projections, which consist of straight model output rather than output that is statistically processed to combine it into probability distributions. And then another strand of information is what we call UKCP regional, and in fact, UKCP local. So we also have a set of regional climate model projections, which are configured at higher spatial resolution of 12 kilometers, and they cover both the UK and Europe. And then most recently, we've added another exciting new tool, which is a set of so-called convective permitting model simulations just for the UK, which is configured at 2.2 kilometres, which is the highest spatial resolution of information that we've yet provided in any release of UK national scenarios.
1: There's one thing I just wanted to check real quickly just to get a good basis for what we're talking about. I know you mentioned temperature. So is that the only variable that we're looking at projections of?
3: Oh, yes, well, there are are many different variables, of course, because there are many different variables that potentially drive UK impacts. You know, the results would include precipitation, which is another key driver of impacts through flooding events, for example, but also many users need to look at combinations of variables to assess impacts such as drought, which can happen when, you know, high temperatures are combined with low rainfall, and that can happen over various periods. We can talk about seasonal droughts or multi-seasonal droughts that might go on to encompass, say, two summers and an intervening winter. So what's nice about the new projections, I think, is that we have the probabilistic component, which synthesizes results for many climate models. But we also have these global and regional data sets, which consist of raw climate model output. So these give users much more flexibility to look at, say, impacts over a season or impacts for a given time period, or look at hazards which combine risk from multiple variables. So if you think of the rail network, there are risks from wind events, from heatwave events, from flooding events. It's interesting,
0: you're talking about climate modelling here. Our listeners might not be really familiar with climate models. Could you talk about the sort of general scales and what a climate model is, and what happens when you increase that resolution?
3: Sure. Well, in general terms, when we think of global climate models, which I think is what most people would think of, So this is something which covers the whole world, typically on a mesh of points, which might have a horizontal spacing somewhere in the range of perhaps 50 to a couple of hundred kilometers. And then they would have a number of levels in the vertical and the atmosphere. So, for example, the latest Met Office model has 85 of those. So it includes resolution of the stratosphere reasonably well, for example, as well as troposphere. But they are then coupled to full global models of the ocean as well, which similarly integrate the equations of motion in the ocean. When we come to regional scale climate change, it's been recognized that we need finer resolution to resolve things like the detailed effects of mountains and coastlines or urban effects, for example. So for the past kind of couple of decades or so, the community has become used to running what we call regional climate models, which might cover a region like Europe, for example. And of course, they're, they're also used extensively in other parts of the world. And in the latest generation of UKCP, we got down to a spatial resolution of 12 kilometers for our European simulations. That still doesn't allow us to resolve explicitly certain things which could alter our perception of impacts of local climate change in the UK. And in particular, we can't resolve even in a regional climate model explicitly the dynamics of large convective storms. So what the convective permitting model does for the first time is to allow us to include that dynamics explicitly in the models, which means for the first time now that as well as making plausible projections of extreme events that might happen on a daily timescale, we can start to explore what events might happen on an hourly timescale, certainly in terms of rainfall.
0: It sounds like it's particularly important to have these convective processes because those are the ones that are generating extremes and extreme rainfall in particular on shorter timescales. Is that correct to
3: say? Well, that's correct, although we shouldn't, I think, give the impression that only these localised convective downpours can generate extreme events in rainfall. So if we think of, say, the Boscastle Castle flooding event that happened in 2004, that was an example of an extreme convective downpour on the timescale of a few hours which only a convective permitting model could resolve. However, global and regional climate models are also capable of giving us useful information, say on daily rainfall accumulations, because some of these would happen, for example, through the rapid passage of a synoptic scale weather system, which might have a spatial scale of a few hundred or a thousand kilometres.
1: I guess one thing that listeners might be wondering at this point is why not just run all of the models on this 2.2 kilometre resolution if we have it now? I guess this is a bit of a a toss-up between computing power and the time that we have and then the information that we actually need.
3: That's absolutely right. So so we're very fortunate in the Met Office to enjoy access to a world-class level of supercomputing resources. There's no doubt about that. That, of course, has been beefed up substantially in recent years because the government has recognised the importance of providing better information on these kinds of extremes in particular. However, we still have to make compromises. So for example, to make the probabilistic projections, we need to be looking at several hundreds global model simulations to give us enough sampling of possible outcomes to be able to create probability distributions that would stand up to external scrutiny for example and be considered somewhat reliable however at the same time we also need to run these 2.2 kilometer simulations to look at aspects of extremes that require the new functionality that they bring At this point, I'd like to,
0: I guess, explore these projections through the work in this new report. And I'd like to bring Simon Brown in to talk about some of the things in that report, and particularly some of the basics of extremes, because they can get a little bit sort of counterintuitive. I'd like the listeners to really understand what we mean by an extreme, particularly in the case of the UK. What are you looking at in the report, Simon? What variables are you looking at in the report? And when you say extreme, what do you mean by extreme? So
2: in this report, we're looking at three different variables, Tmax, which is the hottest daily temperature, and the maximum one-day rainfall, and the maximum five-day rainfall for the four seasons of the year. And we're doing that for the year 1950 to 2100. And we're looking at three different levels of extremes, and Quite a common way to look at extremes is thinking of how often you might see something of a particular level. So the three levels that we're using is one in 20 year event, a one in 50 year event and a one in 100 year event. Now, that's a little bit strange when you're thinking of a climate that's changing continually, but it gives you the idea of how rare these events are. So they're not. The hottest day of the year, they're much rarer than that. They're ones you might only see once every 20 years, for example.
0: These are the return levels I see in the report. And I I really want to go over this and get this absolutely clear in people's mind, because this is quite difficult to communicate in my experience. So return level is a level of something, sort of a temperature or a level of rainfall, you would expect to see on average every 100 years or 50 years. But I've been trying to get this across to my parents who live next to a river. That doesn't mean that if you see the one in a hundred year event one year, you won't see it again the next year. You might see it again next year, even if you've just had it. Is that correct?
2: That is correct, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So just because it's happened doesn't change the probability necessarily that it'll happen some date in the future.
0: So you say it doesn't change the probability, but it sounds like there are things that are changing these return levels. And I wanted to come back to the emission scenarios because one of the uncertainties that James mentioned was the emission scenarios. But we haven't sort of explored that today and how the emission scenarios and what they mean, the impact that they have on these extremes as we go forward.
2: And the simplest terms, emission scenarios, are just notional levels of greenhouse gases being emitted through the next 100 years or 80 years. And through sort of socioeconomic modelling they've come up with a high level, which we call RCP 8.5, and a low level, which has a significant amount of mitigation, i.e. reductions in emissions that keep the concentrations of greenhouse gases at a much lower level. And the corresponding changes in climate, particularly often measured through temperature, is quite different whether we go for the high emission scenario or go through the high mitigation scenario. And so these are both potential options or paths we might take in the future And so we try and cover those bases. If we emit a lot, this is what the climate's going to be like. If we manage to do quite a lot of mitigation, this is what the climate will look like. And the scenarios that we've produced, or the the products we've produced today, hopefully cover that range of possible future emissions.
1: I guess then to link it all together, that one of the main things this report is doing is looking at how these return levels, so these one in every 100-year, one in every 50-year events, is changing due to climate change. So saying a particular extreme heat event, for example, might be a one in a hundred year event right now, but could be a one in 50 year event in the future or a one in 20 year event. Is that right?
2: That is one way of looking at it. The way we've produced the products is, is slightly more f- sticking with a particular return level and seeing how that evolves through the century. We can see what a one in 50 year level is now and then what a one in 50 year level it might be in the future. But as well as that, not just looking at the change, but looking at the associated uncertainty now and how that uncertainty might change in the future, because not only the, the emissions might be different in the future, our knowledge of how to model the climate in the future is also uncertain. And we can try and capture that in these probabilistic projections.
0: Where are the real main uncertainties coming from?
2: It slightly depends on the variable we look at. So there is both, the, as you say, the natural variability, which we express as return levels in this context, and then there's the modelling of the future climate uncertainty, which is both the emissions, but also our lack or, or limited understanding of physical processes and how to represent them in models. So in temperature, for one-day temperature results, we see that the present-day uncertainty, or the natural variability, is quite well characterized by observations. That's quite small. But our future modeling of those changes is quite uncertain. So we end up with quite a large uncertainty by 2100. Whereas compared to the rainfall products, there is quite a lot of natural variability now in the present-day product, or the values for the present day. And the additional future uncertainty is of the same order in the projections.
0: So it depends on the variable and i guess therefore it depends on the physical processes in our understanding of the physical processes as well so some of it will be lack of understanding or a sort of limited understanding and some of it will be just that stuff is more random you know rainfall is more random than temperature uh, over, over sort of the uk
2: if you look at rainfall radar you can see it's very variable on a day and one place will have a very extreme rainfall quite close to somewhere which doesn't and that produces this sort of natural variability large amount of uncertainty In terms of climate change, the tables get turned a bit because the main driver of increasing extreme rainfall is the temperature of the air. Warmer air carries more moisture, and so you can get extreme rainfalls. The temperature of the air is one of the more certain things we have in our climate projections. Perversely, in terms of the daily temperature, one of our great uncertainties is how the surface interacts with a hot day, and if it dries out a lot then that allows temperatures to increase a lot because you haven't got the evaporative cooling. Now, unfortunately, our models, we don't know how well or what the level is of drying that will be. So we have to cover both heavy drying scenario or the not drying very much scenario, which leads to a wide range of future projections. And that's why the temperature product seems to grow so much more in terms of uncertainty.
0: That's really fascinating. So I guess from here, I'd like to do two things. The first is that I'd like to understand, and maybe James wants to come in on this as well, is I'd like to understand the broad results, what this report finds in the broadest sense. And then to wrap up, I think we should think about where the science is going next and how we're going to improve these projections and communicating to the people who really need to know uh, this information, because this sounds like crucial information if you're planning infrastructure or all sorts of things.
3: I think the first thing is to say if we consider the highest emission scenario only because we can see the signals of climate change the most clearly in that one and how they evolve in their basic character through the century, the projections do tend to show future increases in our median, what we call our median projections of future return levels. That's the middle of the probability distribution in all seasons for all variables. So for example, by 2070, If we think of the UK average of regional values, just as a basic national summary, if you like, the median hot day temperature return level for 50 years would go up by about two and a half degrees in winter relative to 1990 more like between sort of three and a half and four and a half degrees in the other seasons based on these UK averages. Now, of course that hides all the regional variations in the changes, which we absolutely do see as well. But this is just giving a kind of general Mm. sense. And that's certainly true for the rainfall estimates, in particular in winter and autumn, which is where we tend to see the most high-impact events in terms of the one-day or five-day rainfall events. The one that's really interesting, though, is actually the summer rainfall changes, because there's a balance of physical processes going on there. So if you just look at the seasonal average rainfall in these projections, then in summer, the probability distributions for those tend to favour a reduction, a drying, particularly over the southern half of the year. UK. So over much of England, really, and certainly Southeast England, the probabilistic changes are heavily kind of skewed towards drying. And yet, if you look at the 2050 or 100 year return level for the extremes, you tend to actually to see rather small changes in that. And that's because there's a balance between the average drying of climate versus the extreme rainfall you get when meteorological conditions are favourable for that. And that tends to be controlled more by vapor content of a column of air in a warmer atmosphere. So that, of course, goes up, as Simon said, because that depends in a very basic way on temperature. Whereas other factors, such as the soil drying that Simon also talked about, tend to control the average changes. So there's a battle of influences going on there. So what you tend to see for summer rainfall is a spreading out of the uncertainties beyond even the wide range that we had for the historical climate from the natural variability To include a range of climate change factors which could take that particular variable in either direction. But for the others, there is very much a focus on an increase, but an increase of uncertain magnitude.
0: Often we hear uncertainty in the context of, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. Uncertainty is not your friend in this case. It just means that the sort of spread of extreme things that might happen can be wider in some of these variables. So it makes it either more difficult to plan for, or you have to plan for more extremes.
3: That's right. I mean, one of the key kind of strengths of presenting information in this probabilistic format is that it does confront planners with the uncertainty. Now, that doesn't necessarily, of course, make their life simple. But what it does mean is that planners are armed with the kind of information they might need to balance the costs of different adaptation strategies against the risks of different possible outcomes actually occurring. And of course, the probability distributions do give some sense of where the most likely outcomes are as well, which would tend to be, of course, near the middle of the probability distributions.
0: I'm imagining it's gonna help them, you know, really sort of rule out some things as well. They're gonna say, "We, we might need to adapt to climate change, but we're very unlikely to need to adapt this far or beyond this. So you might be constraining there space of actions if you like.
3: Yes I think that's true. I I think the one caveat to that is any set of projections whether they're probabilistic or non-probabilistic that include actual data are all based basically on climate model simulations. They are therefore conditional on the knowledge of climate system processes that have gone into those simulations and of course climate models while they are highly sophisticated And suitable and probably our best tools for making these sorts of projections are also imperfect and have some missing processes in them. So I think we'd always kind of recommend to stakeholders and planners that they consider this information, but they also take advice on anything that might be coming along in terms of improved understanding in the future, which could open up the possibility that new processes that we didn't previously know how to model might even change the picture in the future. In terms
0: of caveats, actually, there was just one thing I wanted to pick up with Simon was um, you mentioned earlier that the climate models, you can run them over historical events, and you can see how these return levels and the extremes might have changed from the past to the present, for example. And I'm struck by the fact that you were talking about these extremes are really sort of rare events. How do you understand these rare events? And how do you understand how often they might have occurred in the past, given that they're so rare? So the key
2: to that was sort of worked out in the 1960s or so, where clever people worked out that if you look at just the largest events in a set, they start to form a distribution which is independent of the parent they came from. And that sounds a little bit weird, but the very act of sampling and selecting largest values made them fall into a particular family of distributions. If you collect your data over a long enough period and then just select your large values, you basically want to look at the whole lot in one go and see if you can fit one of these distributions to them. That's their natural behavior by your fact of sampling. And so that's what we've done here. We've taken the observed record, generally sort of 50 years of data or so, selected the extremes there, done exactly the same with the regional model, but taken it from 1950 to 2100. So we've got quite a lot of data now and fitted one of these distributions with the enhancement that they're actually, it's a non-stationary distribution, so it changes from 1950 to 2100. And because we've got that long sweep with a large enough climate change signal at the end, you know, by the end of the century, the signal's quite big. And we say, well, that's the way that affects the distribution is constant or consistent or a function of the global temperature. We can allow that distribution to change year by year throughout that whole period and get a decent estimate or the best that we can think of estimate of what the tail probabilities are.
0: I'm really intrigued as to try to get the listeners to understand the impacts that it might have over the next half century or so um, and try to relate that back to what their experience is and, and what we might have experienced recently. So I understand, James, that you've been looking at some of the figures for London and some of the all-time record heat that we've had recently in the UK um, and, and how those things relate with what's in your report.
3: Sure. So it's maybe helpful to start with what we've observed recently. So during the 2003 summer heat wave, which many listeners will be familiar with, we saw about 2,000 excess deaths in England as a whole. And at that time, we had a record daily UK temperature for an individual station of 38.5, which occurred in Faversham in Kent. And in 2019, actually, that was beaten by Cambridge Botanical Gardens during a brief but extreme heatwave that happened at that time. And we actually saw 38.7 degrees at UK all-time record. That was for one specific location. Whereas when we think about London, we're talking about, you know, an area, for example, of Greater London, which would be over a thousand square kilometres. Now for our new extreme products, we produce these on a 25 kilometre grid. So the grid box that contains central London would be about 600 square kilometres. And if we think about the one in 50 year event Currently for that, we estimate that that is around 36 degrees, actually. But of course, because that's a larger area, it would affect millions of people rather than the smaller number of people at an individual location. Now, if we project forward to 2090, and if we consider first one of the emission scenarios, which has some significant but moderate mitigation measures to reduce future greenhouse gas emissions levels, we see that by 2090, our central estimates of the future value would be 38.5 degrees. But if we consider the highest end emission scenarios, which is RCP 8.5, in which greenhouse gas emissions are assumed to continue unmitigated, we see that our central estimate reaches as high as 40.9 degrees which would be a really significant increase. So that's that's quite a large
0: increase. It's sort of four degrees or, or more than four degrees, and that's over a large area. So I imagine within that space, you would expect larger extremes than that, the smaller points which were higher and some which were lower. Is that right?
3: I think that's right. And um, I guess
0: it's important to, to understand that RCP 8.5, that high emission scenario, is something that's considered quite unlikely given the amount of carbon you'd have to put into the atmosphere. It's a sort of edge case that we use to test our models. Uh, That lower uh, emission scenario you talked about, was that RCP
3: 4.5? It was, yes.
0: Okay, so that's seen as a a fairly middle-of-the-road emission scenario, isn't it? Something that is quite likely to happen.
3: Yes, I think that's right. It's important to say that these socioeconomic scenarios don't come with an attached probability to them actually. So at the time they were produced, which was of course before the Paris Agreement on climate change, they were seen essentially as equally likely, I think. Uh, Now whether they're still equally likely now, of course, depends on what we think the policy response to processes like the Paris Agreement will be. And of course that itself was uncertain and beyond the realm of climate science, and that's really why we do produce a range of these emission scenarios and explore then what the results might be for all of them. But if we think, for example, that something like RCP 4.5 could be a future pathway, then even that will produce increases in a one in 50 year event of more than two degrees compared with current conditions. So we shouldn't think that that's a small impact even in itself, because there's a strong dependence on these heatwave conditions and what they mean. For human health and for infrastructure networks like the railways, for example, where tracks buckle when the temperature exceeds 36 degrees, for example, power lines can sag and things like this. There, there can be lineside fires or forest fires over wider regions. So the risk of these impacts can in some cases depend quite sensitively on what these return levels are.
1: So I guess the question is, now you have released this report, as you were saying, UKCP is a constantly evolving project, so what happens next? Is it back to work tomorrow working on some improvements?
3: Well, it's certainly back to work tomorrow. We're on, I think, now the fifth generation of UK scenarios. And what we've come to appreciate over time is that they're now a living product, really. They're not something that we produce in a frozen moment of time and can then leave alone. There's a big requirement to support users, for example. And we have a whole climate service effort associated with the UK climate projections that we perhaps haven't talked about much today, but is very important. And we have a help desk. And then from time to time, we do have additions to the products of which these new extremes projections are indeed one, which come out. So you're looking at a much higher computing power. The Office is
0: looking at the next generation of computers and you would use those in various different ways,
3: James. So one thing we'd like to do is to bring the global model ensembles that we use to form the bedrock of these probabilistic projections up to the point where they're using the very latest version of the climate model. And that will itself will improve the consistency between the global scale results, for example, for global mean temperature, all the way down to the local 2.2 kilometer UK results. Fantastic. Well, I'd like to say thanks very much, James and Simon, for being on the podcast today.
0: It's been absolutely fascinating. Do you want to tell me where can we get this report and where can we
3: see it and where can we get the results? So this will be available from the UK Climate Projections website. There is a user interface from which the data for the new probabilistic results will be available and the report will be available from that too, along with other communication materials to help explain the product to readers and users. Fantastic. Thanks very much.
0: I'd like to say thanks uh, very much to James uh, Murphy and to Simon Brown for being on the Mostly Weather podcast today. Thanks to my co host, Aisha Tandon, and to Claire Nazir and Adrian Holloway for production and editing. Thanks very much. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Mostly Weather podcast.
1: Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.